Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we're supposed to be getting storm up here too. Yep, I've been getting all kinds of notifications from people about it. So <laughs> the storm is coming. It sounds sounds like it could be the theme of a Jimmy Cliff song. Yep. Or a conservative conspiracy theory. <laughs> Let's play another round of Jimmy Cliff song or conservative conspiracy theory. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and as always, I've got a piece in my hand, and I'm ready to take on the man. Hell yeah. Yeah. As always, just standard form, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's taking you over 210 episodes to state this, but as always, that's always been the case. Yeah. Well, I'm going the opposite direction, and I'm kind of taking on like a dad form for this episode. Oh, is that right, Jeremy? Yeah, it's it's winter here in Michigan, right? Well, sort of. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. And I just wanted to throw a helpful reminder out to our listeners to get your windshield wipers replaced. Because I did, and I can see clearly now. <laughs> <laughs> Pro Beautiful. Tip. You're really looking out for the people here. I appreciate that. I am co-host Peter Cook, but I am thinking about taking on a stage name. Oh, do go on. Yes, I want it to reflect where I see my musical career going. Oh, <laughs> I'm intrigued. And? When was the last time you played a show, Peter? Mm, 2021. Okay. <laughs> I may play one in this brand new year of 2024 yet, though. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. I'm thinking, yeah, I want this name to reflect where I see my music career going. So therefore, I'm considering going with Peter Basement. Oh. (laughs) I like it. Now I feel bad. Joining us today, returning to the podcast for a third time is a musician, record collector, based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Welcome back, Sean Hartman's doppelganger, Shane Hartman. For a second there, I thought you were going to call me Sean I thought the same uh... thing was happening. (laughs) (laughs) Great to be back here with you guys in this wonderful world with you beautiful people. Aw. Aw. Good to have you back. Back for a third time, back for a third reggae album. Yeah, we joked I'm going to be the uh, reggae correspondent. We really don't mean to typecast you, Shane, but this seems to be your thing. And, why, you know, if, if you're good at a thing, roll with it. I agree. And, uh, you know, this is a, a record that I'm really excited about. It's one that kind of slipped under my radar, honestly, even though it's been sitting in my collection for about 20 years. So thank you for having me back. Yeah, would would you like to introduce the record to our listeners? Sure. 
We're going to do uh, Jimmy Cliff's 1973 record, Unlimited. Yeah. This came hot on the heels of the soundtrack to The Harder They Come. And we'll talk more about that. But where did we want to start to give them a taste of Jimmy Cliff Unlimited? I think we want to jump off with the the first track, Under the Sun, Moon, and Stars. It's a good, good way to get into it. All right, let's do that. Side A, track one. Yes, as I was saying, I like work, you know. But when I work, I must get paid. You don't understand what I'm trying to tell you. Listen, try and understand. Listen. My four parents worked from sun up till sundown. Peace could not be found. Now they are under the ground. I've heard them complain and cried out in pain seeking peaceful gain under the sun moon and stars won't happen to me i'm not blind you see i've got to be free i want it right here on Got to have some fun For my life is done Let happiness run Under the sun, moon and stars Under the sun Under the moon Under the stars Wherever you thought that was a very clever way to start the album with just that kick drum and him talking. Those of us not tuned into reggae, you kind of think those kick drums are on the first and third beat of the measures, but they're actually on the second and fourth, as reggae does. But in if your mind's not like thinking of it that way, it feels like the words are like off beat or something, and you're like, "What's going on?" And then like the music kicks in, you're like, "Oh, there it is." Yeah, there have been a few times where I was starting this record and thought things seemed off initially, even knowing it was a reggae record. Yeah, yeah, clever start. I have to say, I've never noticed that to be honest. And that's wild. You know, this guy, the drummer on here is actually, he's one of the guys that gets credited as inventing, you know, the one drop um, style. So it's kind of fitting that he would slip that in right there. But yeah, I agree. It's a really cool and kind of dynamic way to start things out, you know, and then when that reggae drops in, you're like, 
you're you're there for it. There's definitely some strong soul influence happening there and all over this record and Jimmy Cliff's entire catalog. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that really like sets him apart is his use of dynamics, you know. He he will set up a song in a way that it doesn't sound like a reggae song, you know, and then when they get to the chorus, the reggae drops in. He's really adept at at switching back and forth between styles, and I think that's one of the things that that really set him apart from a, a lot of the other early reggae artist and kind of made him probably appeal a little more to the mainstream because he could lure you in with that. And then before you know it, you're listening to an up-tempo reggae tune, you know, it's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. He is effectively, as far as I can remember, he is my introduction to reggae music as he was for many American audiences. <laughs> of course, mine was well, well after the fact, because in 1993, I was 13 years old and just really starting to listen to popular radio. And he had his cover of Johnny Nash's I Can See Clearly Now that was all over the airwaves at that time and it was on the Cool Running soundtrack. Yeah, which, <laughs> I loved that movie. <laughs> it was a great Disney film. Yeah. And I think we've we we may have d- discussed that another time you were on. I know we discussed the Best of Reggae CD that my father bought me around that same time. Right. And that had Johnny Nash on it and it had Jimmy Cliff. I think that The Harder They Come was on that CD. My father was a big fan of that soundtrack. That was a record we had in my household growing up. So The Harder They Come soundtrack, that is pretty much ground zero for me for reggae that's for so many people that record is you know the one that introduced them to reggae or really any kind of jamaican music a lot of people i know a lot of folks who their parents had this growing up and you know so they knew desmond decker they knew toots they knew uh jimmy cliff so yeah, that soundtrack changed a lot of people's lives, including my own. That that was my introduction to Jimmy Cliff as well. Probably 13 or 14, you know, finding a copy of The Harder They Come because it was one of the only reggae records you could find in my neck of the woods. So yeah, it definitely changed my life for the better. Yeah, very cool. I was it was fun finally watching that film in preparation for this. I had never seen it. And I had a moment watching it where I, I thought, wow, I, I'm more versed in reggae than I thought. I know so many songs in this thing. And then I had to mo- <laughs> absentmindedly had that thought. And then I'm like, dude, you grew up with the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know these songs. It's a good variety of tunes and artists that are on there. Sean, you, you've been familiar with that soundtrack for quite a few years, haven't you? Yeah, I owned the soundtrack for many years before watching the movie just like you i think i watched it for the first time just like two or three years ago Uh, at this point that's got to be probably the majority of people that own it i feel like more people own that soundtrack than have seen the movie absolutely yeah and as someone who has looked through a lot of people's record collections over the years at record stores it's like this and third world are like 
that soundtrack and art records by the artist third world are like the most common things to find in someone's collection who doesn't have any other reggae right they'll, they'll be like just that one in the collection as an outlier so yeah it it reached a lot of people who were otherwise mostly unfamiliar with reggae jeremy how about you what's your background with jimmy cliff <laughs> or reggae music <laughs> if you want to go further <laughs> I would say reggae is maybe my, like, might be like my biggest blind spot in music, which feels absurd given uh, the the lyrical content and how up my alley it would be. <laughs> but I had a roommate in college who went through a reggae phase, like the same time they're discovering marijuana. And it just left these like weird impressions on me that I have avoided reggae mm-hmm. ever since. That's not a unique story. I've heard that so many times from folks who they they won't come out and say they don't like reggae, but I, you could tell, you know, that it's kind of like, uh, you know, they've had some experience where they've equated it in their head with some some negative. Uh, type of experience and so they've avoided it but it's really such a vast music you could never hit the bottom of it so i always try to break those people so i'm gonna i'm gonna break you jeremy (laughs) i'm gonna make sure that uh you you get the good stuff i love when people say that to me yeah uh all of those same things could be applied to either reggae music or the catalog of the grateful dead (laughs) (laughs) yeah yep I, I had that experience with the Grateful Dead, so I was I was gonna make that comparison, Sean. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> both are vast <laughs> catalogs, <laughs> and often when people are vocally against them, it's more uh, some kind of cultural thing that they've experienced more so than the actual music. <laughs> and I will say that Jimmy Cliff, I feel like within the reggae genre, probably often gets written off by people as being like pop reggae. Yeah, I I got to mention this deep deep memory came out of me listening to Jimmy Cliff and seeing he was the one who made the remake of I can see clearly now that that music video was included on like laptops and computers with Windows 95 on it. <laughs> and as a kid, there was these things would come preloaded with that music video and the Spin Doctors, uh, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. And I watched those music videos probably like a hundred times each just because they were there. <laughs> and it was so cool to see a video on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that Weezer Buddy Holly was also one with like the Windows 95 oh, OS. Yeah. I must have not got that one. because. Yeah. Well, and those songs you're talking about would have been a couple years earlier. Yeah. Than, than that so that makes sense yeah 93 that's funny <laughs> circumstantially that's one of your most viewed videos of all time yeah. <laughs> i don't think i had ever actually seen the video i had the single and i had the cool running soundtrack but i had somehow i didn't recognize the video when i w- watched it in preparation for this hmm. so yeah i don't know that i've ever seen it let me get you guys a copy of Windows 95 and we can all revel in it together. You got to see it the right way. Yeah. Well, I would be more than happy 
since I wasn't really familiar with much information on Jimmy Cliff to just get started on the bio, if you guys are ready to do that at this point. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm ready to learn. So Jimmy Cliff was born James Chambers in St. James near Montego Bay on the north coast of Jamaica. Now, this is a to state his birth date in, in and of itself is taking a stance here because I'm pretty positive he was born July 30th, 1944, since he says so. However, there is a lot of misinformation out there stating that his birthday is April 1st, 1948. And a lot of the information about what age he was when things happened in his career are based on that 1948 date. According to him, April 1st, which is April Fool's Day, as we all know, mm-hmm. is his father's birthday, April 1st. But I don't know where the 1948 comes from, because obviously his father couldn't be born after him. This isn't don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going with him being born in 1944. He was the son of a tailor, and he became interested and involved in music from a young age, writing his first songs while still attending primary school. He lists Little Richard, Sam Cooke, and Fats Domino among his earliest influences. And I think you can definitely hear that in his music. As a teenager, he moved to Kingston and took the stage name Cliff to indicate the heights he strove to reach. Hence why I'm Peter Basement. <laughs> he released <laughs> He released a couple singles as early as 1961 to Little Fanfare before seeking the assistance of restaurant and record store owner Leslie Kong, who had no experience in producing records but saw the potential in the young Cliff and launched the label Beverly's And he had the capital to hire the best engineers and musicians in Jamaica to back the young singer. The first single on the newly minted label was Cliff's song, Hurricane Hattie, backed with Dearest Beverly. And they were produced by Kong. Jimmy Cliff was only 17 years old by this point, and that brought him to wider attention. He also began working A&R for Beverly's, which soon released the first two singles by none other than Bob Marley. Judge, mm. Yeah, yeah, and Jimmy Cliff helped bring him to the label. They released Judge Not and One Cup of Coffee on Beverly's. Kong would quickly establish himself as the leading producer in Jamaican music, and the label would also re- release major hits for Desmond Decker and Toots and the Maytels. So Jimmy Cliff scored several local hits on the label, and in 1964, he was chosen as one of Jamaica's representatives at the World's Fair in New York. Isn't there footage, Shane, of him performing at that? Yeah, you know, there's there's a documentary that's called This Is Ska. I don't think that it's footage from the World's Fair, but it is footage of that same band and the singers that they backed. Uh, there may be footage actually from the World's Fair, but uh, I'm not sure about that. But there's definitely footage of him with the with the Byron Lee uh, Dragonairs, the band that they chose to to back them um, at that '64 World's Fair. Okay, so he soon signed with Island Records and moved to the UK. Island initially tried to market him to rock audiences unsuccessfully, but his debut album, Hard Road to Travel, was released in 1967, and it did well. 
particularly in Brazil, where the song Waterfall was a smash hit. Uh, subsequent songs gained him more attention, like Wonderful World, Beautiful People. That was his first U.S. Top 40 hit. Bob Dylan said of Cliff's popular song, Vietnam, that it was the best protest song he had ever heard. So he was getting praise from the voices in, the big voices in U.S. music. And then Jimmy Cliff came to much wider attention when he portrayed aspiring singer turned criminal Ivanhoe Martin in the 1972 Jamaican film, The Harder They Come. And this was Jamaica's first feature film. And as we've discussed, its accompanying soundtrack featured several of Cliff's songs alongside other singles released in the late 1960s and early 70s by favored reggae artists. And the soundtrack played a major part in popularizing reggae in the United States and other parts of the world, ensuring that the genre did not remain isolated to Jamaica. So this album followed hot on the heels of that breakthrough, but it also marked a major creative shift and just sort of a working environment for Cliff because his longtime producer, Leslie Kong, had died suddenly of a heart attack in 1971 at the age of 37, very young. So this was Cliff's first full-length studio album after that, and it is self-produced. So I feel like, yeah, he was at a very transitional time in his career here. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize he he was one of the first guys to really break reggae to an, an international audience, more so than Bob Marley. You know, he he was he was kind of hitting his stride, you know, in Europe and even in in the U.S. When um, the Whalers, you know, they were they were their first album with Island in '72 which uh, Chris Blackwell, I heard Jimmy Cliff talking about it, and he basically said after he decided to leave Ireland, Chris turned his focus to the Whalers and kind of that whole idea of breaking a reggae band with a rock audience. He put that whole business plan, we'll call it, into action with the Whalers after, um, you know, he left Island Records. But, you know, Jimmy Cliff was the guy, he was the face of, of reggae for, for a lot of people early on. Yeah, yeah, it's very important to realize that when discussing him, that he, he was really at the forefront, the vanguard of the genre. I was shocked when I learned that, yeah, it was him who brought on Bob Marley. Yes, and, you know, even... I think uh, he also may have even introduced Desmond Decker um, to Leslie Kong. You know, Leslie Kong produced pretty much everybody. He made a lot of incredible music in in a short period of time. And yeah, Jimmy Cliff definitely had a hand in bringing uh, a lot of folks along for the ride. Well, how about we listen to another song before we go any further? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. How about we do Black Queen? Which is side A, track four.
That one really jumped out at me, not only because it's a great melody, but obviously the the lyrics, when you focus on them, calling for empowerment for black women. And from what I know of Rastafarianism, it's not exactly a friendly, traditionally a friendly religion to women. They're often expected to submit to the men in their lives. So that seemed like a really bold and noble stance for Jimmy Cliff to be taking. I was unaware of that, but I don't know much about Rastafarianism. You're saying it was patriarchal. Yes, indeed. Are you at all familiar with some of that, Shane? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I would be hesitant to to speak on that just because I'm not Rastafarian. But, you know, I, I... I look at who he has singing backing vocals on here, and I know there's some uh, famous Rastafarian women, including Rita Marley and Judy Mowat from the I-3s, which uh, backed you know Bob Marley's Wailers after Peter Tosh and uh, Bunny Wailer left. But uh, for me, yeah, I, I, I just also the 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 fact that he has this. Uh, song here I thought was very cool. I, I don't know that I would, I wouldn't have thought of, of it as some sort of bold stance, you know, in, in light of Rastafarian uh, stuff. Jimmy Cliff, although he was Rastafarian at one point, I believe in his life, he also converted to Islam. And then I think he, he kind of, it almost seemed like he, he started to shy away from, from religion a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I just thought it it was a cool that he had had this anthem of black women power on this record, and and yeah, it is. It's got a cool melody. It's got a very cool, different kind of rhythm. That rhythm, you know, this is like the beginning of reggae, so you hear these different types of rhythms. Uh, the papa top was one, and this this is called the John Crow skank. That's just one that you hear in like Mr. Brown or Blood and Fire or that song Cherry Oh Baby was another one. It's just like a, a flip on the reggae rhythm that's pretty cool, I think, because a lot of people tend to think that all reggae is kind of the same thing, but there's these little variations in there that are, that are subtle and very cool, and this uh, song has a little bit of that in it. And as far as the lyrical content of reggae, it is one of those genres where you're more likely to find socially and politically conscious lyrics or like more interesting message-based lyrics than just your typical love you baby lyrics that Jeremy often decries. And I think there's a few things that go into that. I mean, there's obviously like 
plenty of uh, geopolitical stuff going on that makes for a different experience for the people who were living in Jamaica and making these records at the time. But one of the big things with reggae is it was kind of the international style of Jamaica after declaring independence in the early 60s. So there was a lot of national pride and identity with this kind of music. And it also was always very directly inspired by soul, R&B, and rock music happening in the United States at the time. So reggae is like really coming into its own in the late 60s, early 70s, at a time when a lot of U.S. soul music is getting very political and is in a point of transition, and also bringing in a wider array of sounds and instruments to create more interesting music. And you can really see that direct parallel in the reggae music happening around the time. Yeah, I love the way that he kind of pulls you in. It's like, okay, this is kind of a funk R&B soul tune. And then it, <laughs> they drop the reggae on you. I love how Jimmy Cliff in particular does that so often. He'll, he'll have these intros that are, they're not reggae, and then he'll fall into it. Again, I think that that was something that was a little bit atypical for him and one of the things that, that probably uh, made him popular but also may have, like you said earlier, some people may have thought of him as too, being too poppy or too mainstream because he did use these things. But I, I don't see them as tricks. I, I hear it as a, you know, really interesting and dynamic ways to, to, to work with the music and the form. Yeah, he was doing it well enough at this stage in his career that he was a musical guest in the first season of Saturday Night Live, episode 12, hosted by... Dick Cavett, but shortly thereafter, he actually took a break from music and traveled to Africa, converting to Islam from Christianity, as you mentioned. But nowadays, Jimmy Cliff does not align himself with any particular religion. As you mentioned, he says that he believes in science and basically it comes down to right and wrong for him. Amen. Yeah, I was also surprised to see I think a conservative politician used one of his songs and it wasn't that he was against that politician, but he apparently doesn't believe in any politicians left or right. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually where some of that information comes from is a quote he had about that where he, he yeah, it was the British conservative party in 2007 used his song. You can get it if you really want uh, during their annual conference, and he was quoted as saying, one of my bandmates called me this morning to tell me the news. I can't stop them using the song, but I'm not a supporter of politics. I don't support any politician. I just believe in right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and I heard him state in a recent interview that while he agrees that there are massive problems uh, in you know religion, politics, economics, etc., that he feels that the predominant culture of burning bridges with people you disagree with is a fundamental problem that he is very against, and he wants to build bridges with love instead of distancing yourself from people you disagree with is his current stance. Yeah. Yeah, do you get that from his lyrics? Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I can dig that. So he returned to regularly releasing albums in the late 1970s and he was he just started cranking them out again almost yearly his 1985 album cliffhanger 
won a Grammy Award for Best Reggae Recording. Uh, around this time, he worked with Cool and the Gang, The Rolling Stones, and Elvis Costello. Bruce Springsteen covered him. He appeared in another acting role alongside Robin Williams and Peter O'Toole in the comedy Club Paradise. And he continued to sell well in Jamaica. And he was doing okay in the UK as well. But it wasn't until 1993 that he achieved his biggest success in the United States with the aforementioned many times over cover of Johnny Nash's I Can See Clearly Now on the Cool Running soundtrack. That reached number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100, so it's his highest charting single in the U.S. He appeared in the oft-forgotten Woodstock 94, which just gets so overshadowed by 1969 and Jeremy's favorite, 1999. (laughs) The lineup was better at 94 than 99, though. Yeah, it was significantly better. They had Jimmy Cliff. Yeah. Uh, A few years later, he appeared on the Cartoon Network program Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which they just seem to get some of the best guests on that show. (laughs) Wasn't Sonny Chirac involved in that show? Uh, He recorded the soundtrack. It was the last album he released before he died. (laughs) That's wild. Um, And then they did like a tribute episode to him where they got Thurston Moore to come on. And every time he tried to talk, they would just interrupt him by blasting like different parts of Sonny Chirac's soundtrack. (laughs) Classic. Wow. (laughs) Jimmy Cliff was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. His 2012 album Rebirth won the Grammy for Best Reggae Album, and he was named Artist of the Year by Caribbean Journal. That album reached number one on the reggae album charts. So that's, you know, this is well into his career that he's he's still hitting. His most recent album is Refugees, released in 2022. So, wow. Yeah. He's 79 years old and showing no signs of stopping. The next selection we wanted to feature is the weirdest cut, I would say, on this record. He, he, he gets a little experimental at times. And that would be the song Commercialization, which is side A, track seven. Let's hit it. Commercialization from observation of this civilization. Advertiser, 
that song initially might seem out of place on this album or a reggae album in general, but to my ears, it has a strong influence from some of the other big soundtracks that were coming out around that time. You had The Harder They Come in 1972, but this was also a great time for the genre of films known as black exploitation. Think about the soundtrack to Superfly that also came out in 1972, Shaft in 1971, you know, across 110th Street, 1972. You can really hear a lot of those same elements that went into making that kind of like psychedelic funk soundtrack type vibe. It's, it's really, it's like the reggae version of it is what we're hearing here on commercialization. Yeah, I was going to say the, the, the same thing. It, it's got that, it invokes that inner city blues, makes me want to holler meets like, you know, Norman Whitfield, like you said, the psychedelic soul, uh, the strings. It's a very cool arrangement um, that has just so much depth and, and texture and is, is really funky. Yeah, I actually started to pick up on a little bit of a Arthur Lee love vibe while listening to that one. Mm -hmm. The brass on that song was arranged by Carl Peterson, who was the engineer on the album. So he's helping Jimmy produce this record. The other brass on the other songs is arranged by the album's trumpeter, Bobby Ellis, who actually worked with Herbie Mann this same year. Also did some work with Peter Tosh. The strings are arranged by Leslie Butler, who played the Mellotron that we heard on that song, flute, strings, cellos, synthesizer. Such a neat sound. Yeah. Yeah, it's great whenever it, it comes in. Uh, the rest of the band down here, uh, they seem to have a few different names, and it often could depend on who they were playing with. They're like the house band of the Beverly's label, Beverly's All-Star Band. Jackie Jackson on bass. Winston Grennan on drums. That's who you referred to earlier, Shane, about uh, right. who was the uh, innovator towards the, uh, what, what did you call it? Well, he, he has claimed to be the inventor of One Drop. I don't necessarily agree that, that he invented it, but he's definitely one of the innovators of this style. And uh, funny story, one time I actually met him playing with like this Lawyer Blues type band. He was just sitting in with them and uh, he was a really cool dude. And uh, he actually did a little drum solo just to show off all of his uh, reggae chops. But he, he's definitely like one of the guys up there with like Sly Dunbar and yeah, Lloyd Nibbs and Leroy Horsemouth Wallace, these guys who like innovated this very unique style of drumming. And can you describe the one drop style to people who are unfamiliar? Sure. Well, the one drop where the name comes from is because it, typically in pop and rock music, the kick drum will accent the one and the with the back beat provided by the snare drum on two and four. But what the reggae players did is they started slamming the back beat really hard with the kick drum and the snare drum simultaneously, leaving out that first kick drum beat that a lot of people in rock music you know they anticipate that so when they hear it it's it's almost like the beat feels turned inside out um, but it's called one drop because they literally drop uh the one they drop that first beat they don't play it on the kick drum i'm not sure if that was a, a good explanation or, or not 
Yeah, no, it was. Thank you for describing that. I wasn't sure what, what exactly that meant. We have actually heard from Winston Grennan before on the podcast because he played on the Kid Creel and the Coconuts album, Tropical Gangsters. We also have Winston Wright on organ, Hux Brown on lead guitar, Rad Brian on rhythm guitar. Uh, Rad takes uh, lead on a a few songs, but none of the ones we're hearing today, so keeping it simple. Gladstone Anderson on piano, who led many of these musicians mentioned in what were, they were also known as the Gladys All-Stars, in addition to being the Beverly's All-Star Band, and that's because that's Gladstone, Gladys All-Stars. Their name would change depending on who they were working with, including becoming the Upsetters when they worked with Lee Scratch Perry. This band's literally worked with everybody. Once you start looking on the back of reggae records uh, where you see the musicians' names, you will always see these guys. Um, They created this style. Some of them are are still around, but a lot of them we've, we've lost, including uh, Hux Brown died this past year, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It was pretty recently when I was looking into the players. The percussionists include Bongo Herman and Sticky Thompson. Backing vocalists, which you mentioned earlier, Shane, Rita Marley, Bob Marley's wife, and Judy Moat, two-thirds of the I-3s. Missing is Marsha Griffiths, correct? Right. Who she's, a f- I love her stuff. Marcia- oh, yeah, she's great. And this album was recorded at Dynamic Sounds Recording Company Studios in Kingston, Jamaica. Wasn't that was the kind of the main place, wasn't it, Shane? Yeah, I mean there there were there were a bunch of st- studios. This was one of probably like the as far as sound quality, Dynamic kind of had one of the cleaner sounds. I won't say better. You know, Studio One definitely has its sound, which. Um, is is so unique but dynamic uh was really you know a, a top-notch sort of facility byron lee who i mentioned earlier i think he purchased this studio at some point in, in the 60s and, and it became dynamic studios I, mean, I can't quite remember what studio it was before it might have been like uh the west indian recording studio but in, anyways yes it's a it's a You've heard this studio, if you've heard Paul, uh, Paul Simon came here when he uh, recorded Mother and Child Reunion. This is pretty much the same band. And these guys, like you said, they're, they're all over the place. So Now, you've seen Jimmy Cliff live, correct? Yeah, I saw him about, uh, it's been about 20 years ago. And I actually, you know, I was a fan of Jimmy Cliff, but I was actually going to see uh, Toots and the Maytals. They were playing, it was a double bill. Um, Toots played first and blew my mind. So I was kind of like, you know, whatever. Uh, Jimmy Cliff came up, opened with Bongo Man, which I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that song, but it's one that, that just starts with, uh, with drums. And um, the performance was amazing. It's still, you know, one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah, I haven't had the privilege of seeing him live, but... I was impressed with his energy as a performer in the, some of the clips that I was watching because like at Woodstock 94, he would have been right around, you know, 50 years old at that time. And he was still moving like a youngster. Yeah, he gets, he gets around. I saw an interview, a recent interview with him. I think he's, 
his mobility is, is not as good these days. Obviously, I mean, he's, he's almost 80, so. But, yeah, he's, he's got that spirit. Cool. Sean? Yeah. Are you there? I'm, I'm here. Do you need something? Can I help you? I, I do need something. <laughs> oh, what could it be? I need a wider span of albums to choose from, but I want them to be like this album. Okay. Maybe like a similar recommendation, similar genre, time period, uh, maybe something on vinyl that could be potentially found cheap, something like that. That would be very helpful. All right, cool. I got three of them for you. Uh, another big 1973 reggae album that is not cheap every time you find it, but it shouldn't be too hard to find cheap. John Holt, 1,000 volts of Holt. Another major player in the foundation of the reggae sound. Great vocalist. Good one. And I, I saw a lot of people stating that 1973 is kind of viewed as the year that pop reggae took off. Part of that is artists like Jimmy Cliff who were pioneering it and, you know, getting success worldwide. But a lot of it is also all of these British and American rock artists that are being exposed to reggae, sometimes for the first time, just the year before from the big soundtrack. And one of the many artists that tried their hand at making a reggae album did a pretty good job. The great Herbie Mann. 1973, he released an album called Reggae. And it's obviously cheap and obviously really good. And it has a lot of these same players, actually, on, on that record. I think there are many of these same That's players. Yeah, Herbie yep. Mann always did it. He didn't want to just get some random studio people to imitate a sound. He would usually travel the world and get the originators of the sound when he wanted to do a fusion record. And then last up, an album that was one of the earliest reggae albums that I purchased, and it's still fairly cheap, highly recommended. One of the best reggae live albums that I've heard, Toots and the Maytals, Reggae Got Soul from 1976. It's really hard to go wrong with any of their records uh, from the beginning to the end. Very cool, Sean. And it's fun to talk reggae. So, Shane, thanks for coming back and talking reggae with us again. Uh, Anytime. You know so much more about all the intricacies of the genre than I think any of us. So it's it's helpful. I have a question for Jeremy, though. Would you say that your opinion on reggae has shifted at all over the course of this podcast? Has Shane softened you? <laughs> I think soften is a good word for it. Okay. I haven't been like hooked in yet, but that like hardened shell of just like automatic no when I hear that two and four beat <laughs> drop, uh, that is softened. And I feel like I'm that wall is thinning and eventually it's going to break through All and right. get to me. But well, Shane, Shane, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. You're a reggae <laughs> correspondent until. Until Jeremy's uh, heart of ice melts, and then you're free yeah. to talk about other genres. But until then, you have a mission. We, we've opened a can yeah. of worms. I'm, I'm going to be emailing you lots, lots of recommendations, Jeremy. So get ready. <laughs> There's some stuff you'll like. I guarantee it. All right. Yeah, and I think Jimmy Cliff is a good artist for you, since the the lyrics are probably something you can get behind. Yeah, and the 
this this record is more dynamic than I remember a lot of reggae being. Mm-hmm. But that could just be my my walls of no, hatred. I, <laughs> I, I think you're right. That that was the point I was making about his the way he shifts between genres and and you know does these little I won't call them tricks, but he'll he'll lure you in, and then before you know it, you're listening to a reggae tune. Yeah. There's a good reason he was the one to break reggae through to international audiences. Well, Shane, before we wrap things up here, is there anything you would like to plug that you do or you've done for our listeners to check out? Uh, sure. I'll just mention my bands. Uh, I play with a couple groups, uh, The Old Ceremony and uh, Dynamite Brothers and a new group called Them Carolina Boys coming out soon, as well as a, a reggae jazz combo called Dub Lorenzo. We play around this area, so if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, I'm at swangin2, S-W-A-N-G-I-N, the number two. You can find me on Instagram. It's mostly records, but I do promote my gigs and my DJ gigs as well, which are usually reggae-themed. I do a lot of uh, reggae covers of pop and rock tunes that people recognize so that that's kind of my specialty very cool a lot to check out you you you're up to a lot i try well thanks for spending a little bit of your time man it's a pleasure getting familiar with this record because <laughs> you said you've had it a long time but hadn't spent you know yeah no deep listen so thank you man uh, you know it's one of those things about having a big record collection i love it because you're constantly rediscovering things that, that you have and maybe you bought and you weren't, you know, open to them at that time, but you know, you come back and, and they, they, they find a spot. Yeah. I bought this while I was on a vacation in Norway at a store in Oslo called rock and rolls. And it, it, reggae was pretty affordable. There used reggae was pretty affordable compared to the United States. So I, used the opportunity to pick up a few reggae releases while I was there. And I really, aside from the harder they come soundtrack and cool runnings, I've never really spent time with a proper full Jimmy cliff studio album. So this is a great one to start with. It seems sort of overlooked in his catalog. So I'm curious to see what his other releases leading up to this and after this sound like, you know, I checked out bits and pieces in preparation, but I'm, I'm ready to spend more time with Jimmy cliff, having already been a casual fan for close to 30 years at this point. Yeah. He's got a lot of, a lot of different stuff. You know, there's that period with the early stuff where it's, there's a lot of pop soul tracks. Some of it's really good. And then, you know, there's the, the straight reggae stuff and, his late later uh, stuff, like you guys mentioning, I can see clearly now. He, he's had a deep career, you know, worked with Coolin again. Come on. Yeah. All right. Well, excellent. We're going to wrap up this installment of I Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you so much, listeners. You can always check us out on Instagram at I'd Buy That Podcast or on Facebook. Search I'd Buy That for a Dollar. You'll find our regular page as well as you can join our Facebook group. Uh, the I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group where you can share records, recent finds, share them with the, the group there. It's a growing community. We're going to go out on the song Born to Win, which is the last track on the album. And something I would like listeners to note are the biblical references 
And it includes the stone that the builder refused shall be the head cornerstone, which you might recognize from Bob Marley using that line out of the Bible. That's it. This is Born to Win. This is Jimmy Cliff. No, this is Peter Cook. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Peter Basement. Oh. Hey, some of the best shows I have ever seen are in basements. Oh, I'm I'm aspiring to True. what I believe to be great heights. Good. <laughs> I'm not diminishing the basement. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and this will definitely be the song to my conservative politician campaign. <laughs> <laughs> born to win yeah i'm co-host sean and i'm just gonna go ahead and insert a final thought about this song i feel like this track is a good representation of jimmy cliff's kind of attitude and approach it seems like a pop song maybe a little light at first but when you listen to the lyrical content it's not just a everything's gonna be great i'm gonna win it's Everything is going to be awful. There's going to be a lot of trials, but I'm going to remain positive and come out the other end regardless. Yeah, great, great summary. Thanks for coming on, Shane. Thank you. Anytime. Be happy to come back. I cannot fail, cause I'm not alone No, no, no